Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Andrew, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 69 books on my bookshelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. And today, just my friend Toby. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, I'd like to give myself a pat on the back for reading the copy that said Bailey and her number of books and adjusting in real time. Wow. He's really got a theater experience, folks. That's how you can tell that kind of improvisation. Can't teach that except by teaching it to you over charging years you to years. go to theater school. Yeah. Well, how you doing, Toby? It's been a minute. <laughs> I'm doing well, Andrew. How are you? I'm pretty good. First of all, I want to give you the the chance that I know that you've been building to. How did your final Goodreads challenge goal end up at last year? How impressive was it? Great point. It's mm. been so long since that I've already sort of you know, logged it as a past success or failure. We'll see. Mm-hmm. So my goal going into the year was a, I think, achievable 42 books. Dear Pages, you know from listening to the podcast, <laughs> or maybe you don't, maybe this is your first time, that I smashed that by like March yep. um, of last year or something like that. And I ended up being so close to 100 books at the end of the year that I spent a lot of time around uh, (laughs) Christmas and leading up to New Year's reading as fast as I could because I'd never feel like I'll get this close again. But I did it. I ended up with 100 books. The Body in the Library by Agatha Christie was the capstone on my year. That does double duty because that's part of that five book Agatha Christie section I have where if it gets pulled, I have to read all of them. So now I'm too into that. You're whittling away at that. What did you think of The Body in the Library? I liked it. I like Poirot more than I like Marple is what I'm learning from my recent – yeah. Dells, which feel, I mean, I want to like Marple, but she just isn't as active a part of it. It's more like she kind of knows things in the background, at least mm-hmm. in the first couple I've read. Maybe that changes further into her series. Yeah, I also feel like in popular culture, they've injected her with sass that she doesn't really have in the books. <laughs> no, she's very proper. <laughs> yeah, very proper, very like quiet, as you said, just kind of like hanging out. And I guess Hercule is as well, but he's hanging out with a mustache, which I don't know. It helps. Oh, yeah. I mean, he has that big mustache and he loves to just, I mean, readers, if you haven't read these, the conceit of at least the first chunk of Poirot, and it changes as he goes on, is he has, it's narrated by a guy named Hastings who (laughs) thinks he's really smart. Oh, yeah. Poirot just keeps calling him an idiot (laughs) over and over again, but in a polite way. And he's like, my friend Poirot, I solved it. And Poirot's like, oh, you're dumb as heck, but it's good to have a dumb person around. Uh, Um, And that's more charming to me than at least the first couple marbles. But I do enjoy them. I'll keep reading them. How about you, Toby? Did you uh, have a goal? Did you succeed? in your goal? I did. What's your new goal? (laughs) Whoa, slow down, Andrew. Um, (laughs) Yes, I had a goal. It was 70 books and I hit that goal. I think I ended up with 72. I'm pretty excited about it. I think for a couple years there, I didn't hit my goal. But yeah, I really buckled down last year. I read a lot, a ton of good books. I think I've upped it to 75 this year, which is audacious, I will say. Yeah, I mean, 25 fewer than I read last year, but yeah, it's an audacious goal. <laughs> All right, cool, cool. Andrew, it's just you and me on the podcast. We have to, you know, kind of have a good vibe here. Yeah, no, but I, I will say I have a secret weapon, which is the Murderbot Diaries. Have you heard of these? No. Okay. So the Murderbot Diaries, I think they're getting like an adaptation by Netflix or something. Um, The author is Martha Wells. It is a great series of, I think I would call them novellas. I read them on audiobook and they're only like 
three to four hours long each. <laughs> so they are books and they're fantastic, but they are a little bit more bite-sized. So if I ever found mm-hmm. myself falling behind last year, <laughs> I would read one of them. Um, hey, that's fair. They're narrated by a main character who calls himself Murderbot. He is basically like a human robot hybrid who works as a security robot for this big corporation that goes into space. And basically he's not supposed to be sentient, but he has hacked himself so that he is sentient. And basically all he really wants to do is watch like soap operas and hang out by himself. But then he's forced to save humans over and over again. Yeah, they're really good. You know, I could end up around there this time, though. I will say that enjoyed reading a lot of books. I kid about reading 100 books. That was stretching it for me and, Mm. you know, made me less social than I should have been around the holidays. So I I took my my goal down. I, I've gone for a very achievable, I believe, fifty two a book a week. I feel like that's realistic. Yeah. If I decide to go over it again, that's fine. But I'm just not going to put pressure on myself because I feel like I did that one year. I don't need that to be every year for me. I mean, speaking of that kind of pressure, I will say that on the group chat we all share, uh, we did all receive a text at I think eleven fifty eight on New Year's Eve, and <laughs> Bailey texting us <laughs> that she <laughs> hit her Goodreads goal. So we salute you bailey yes yeah i had i had knocked mine out earlier in the morning and like enjoyed the rest of the evening (laughs) i just took advantage of every hour at her disposal speaking of things that bailey usually uh leads do Mm. you have any shame i mean it was the holiday season this shame's always a little tinged with like well it was a gift you know i didn't i didn't get any books as gifts maybe pejo's listening will relate to this where it's like for a while when you're growing up and people and your family and your friends discover that you like reading they're like, I'll give them a book. And then they like see the expression on your face when they give you like the alchemist. And you're like, thank you. Thank you for this. Thank you for this. And then slowly that kind of fades away. So I don't think people really give me books anymore unless it's like they think it's a diamond certified recommendation, which is either if they know what they're doing, it's spot on. It's impressive. Or if they're like overly confident, you're like, thank you for my fifth copy of The Alchemist. But anyway, (laughs) I did buy Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. You familiar with this one? Is this like a business book? It's like Have I a, seen this at my work? It's like it's like pop psychology. I think a lot of like business people like it. It's about cognition and different types of thinking. But yeah, I bought it because I love me a good nonfiction book. It's really long and I attempted to read it already and I'd like to retitle it more like reading yeah and no. Uh, because I'm not reading that book. <laughs> well, that's good. At least you know that about yourself. Mm-hmm. And so you've already sort of put it away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Double shame. How about um, you, Andrew? Any shame? I, you know, it was a pretty light book year. I think all overall, when Bailey comes back to the show, you might be surprised that she's not bringing in like 18 books of shame like she usually does after the holidays. Well, you just jinxed her. Well, yeah. I, mean, I don't know what she's gotten up to since then. But I, I added two books to my list. One, which was a gift for my mother-in-law. Uh, thank you, Tessa. Which I'm really excited to read. Called The End of Drum Time mm. by Hannah. And I'm going to probably butcher this uh, last name, which I believe is Finnish. Poolvalnian. Sounds right to me. Hovainen. <laughs> I'm not sure. But I apologize. And I will, when I read it, learn it and be better. But I'm really excited about it. I, it sort of relates, or at least drum time relates specifically to sort of the Sami people. And that was referenced in that book I read about the Vikings a while ago mm. on the podcast. So I've sort of been curious about it for a while. So hopefully that will be pulled at some point. Cool. And then I also got a copy of The Writing Retreat by Julia Bartz, which Mm. I believe is sort of a thriller set at a writing retreat. Maybe like that Carmen Maria Machado story on steroids. That's what I immediately thought of. So I'm excited about both of those, but that's a manageable amount of shame to to bring into the new year. Pocket full of shame. 
a handful a pocket of, shame. Full of shame shine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, that sounds yeah. pretty decent. I'd also like to share with you uh, some pride instead of shame. Ooh, look oh, at nice. you. Thank you. That's um, not what this podcast is about. <laughs> fine. I, I will mention last time that Bailey was gone, you and I helped coin the term pages. So can we do it again? Can we, can we brand something? <laughs> can we something? keep adding value to this? Yeah. <laughs> can we fundamentally change it without two of our members? Yes. <laughs> Please. So Louise and I, loyal pages will know, we have been reading to each other the second in the Farseer trilogy by Robin Hobb, Royal Assassin. And we finally finished it. Ooh. I don't know. I'm very proud of us for doing it. I'm proud of you too, Toby. Thank you. I have nothing to be proud of of myself, but I'm <laughs> glad you... 100 books. 100 books. Um, but I mainly bring this up because we really enjoyed it. I give it a four stars. But as I said, it was kind of long and it was a little bit slow in parts. I have not read any of these, though. Assassin's Apprentice is on my to-read list. Mm. So I hope that gets pulled at some point. But our friend Jesse, these are his favorite books ever. Mm. There's like, what, four trilogies or something like that? Yeah, or something like, like that. There's a lot of them. Yeah. And he, I think, believe his the third trilogy is his favorite favorite trilogy so power forward Toby because you got a ways to go <laughs> come on book six yeah. through nine is really where it picks up huh I think he but he has like great reverence for all of them so I think you'll get something out of it but I, I believe it is I was intimidated when he was like you should start the series mm-hmm. the third trilogy is really <laughs> One last thing I just want to say before we get into the reviews. Uh, yeah. If you're listening, Victor Wembenyama, uh, first draft round draft pick of the San Antonio Spurs, <laughs> shout out to you for your reading habits. Apparently, and I don't know if every page saw this, future NBA superstar, already NBA superstar, apparently has a hard out at 930 every night when they're <laughs> not playing a game at that time because after that point, he reads for an hour and goes to sleep and no one is allowed to contact him. Wow. So respect for that. <laughs> May we all bring Victor Wembanyama's energy to the new year. I mean, I would respect him more if he would like interrupt a basketball game like 930. <laughs> be like, mm, third quarter. No, Sorry. I know we're, it's close, but I got to get back to my. I'm deep into Hamnet. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, who was the guy? I don't know if you saw this. There was an NBA player who was reading The Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson. I saw that because it's like the only time I've ever seen an NBA player pop up in like my fantasy <laughs> circle of Reddit. Do you know who I'm talking about? Forget no, but that must feel like how D&D nerds feel when they see Joe Manganiello <laughs> exactly. playing it. They're like, oh, yes, someone <laughs> big and strong also likes this. <laughs> No, I did not see that. I'll have to look it up. Uh, you know what? Stay tuned, Pages. Stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned. Well, by the end of the podcast, maybe we'll figure it out. It's tough. We don't have Dylan to just Google stuff in the background right now. Not that he does a good job of it anyway. No, um, he's bad at that. But. <laughs> oh, I love um, I love throwing shade when someone's not around to defend themselves. Anyway, absolutely. speaking of that, let's do some reviews. Andrew, <laughs> did you read a book for this podcast? I did read a book for this podcast. I read Stay True by Hua Su. Ooh, rhyme, rhyme, rhyme. Yeah, so I think Pedro's might have seen this book around. It has a very bright orange cover and a, a photograph of someone taking a photograph of you and sent in the middle. Whoa. And it recently won the Pulitzer for nonfiction last year. So it's been around. Um, the reason I first bought it, though, is because Hua Su, he no longer is there, but while I was in college, was a professor in the English. I never had a class with him, but he was always really well thought of. So I saw this book pop up and was like, gotta support him. And so it was a pleasant surprise to then see it sort of blow up afterwards. But I knew very little about it when I got it. I just got it based on the name. But I'm glad I did. And mm. let's get into why. Nice. Here's a little paragraph introduction, a little amuse-bouche. That's what I'll call it instead of a log line. 
<laughs> we'll settle on a good term eventually. Just yes. not this episode. No, never, never this episode. Kwasu's memoir, Stay True, follows the writer's formative years, chronicling the power of both true friendship and immense loss. Music, belonging, and the Padres are all touched upon, but the emotional core remains the ripples that a single person and their absence leaves behind. Hmm. As per usual, a tasty amuse-bouche. Thank you very much. I think everyone just should be able to do their own thing. And <laughs> I choose to amuse your bouche. Um, <laughs> so yeah, for a little more context about the book, it is a memoir that basically just sort of follows Sue in his... Um, academic years, but specifically focuses on his friendship with a, a man named Ken, who I don't think I can talk about this book without saying what happened. So I'm just going to say it. Uh, his friend Ken, who is murdered while they're in college before their senior year mm. in just sort of a random act of violence near campus. And so it follows his sort of like chronicling of their relationship. And then the final third of the book is all about sort of the ramifications of that act of violence and him moving forward without his friend. Mm. And that's I mean, that is the core of the book. I could try to explain more around it, but I mean, it's a slim, about 200 page tome. So he doesn't put any fluff in. He just kind of focuses on that. With that, I'll jump right into Orcs and Elves because why not? Why not? Hwasu is a wonderful writer. Um, and in particular, I mean, we, we cover mostly wonderful writers on this podcast. I feel like I say that as a pro <laughs> for everything. Mm. But in particular, he's good at presenting complex emotions and like sort of messy concepts. Clearly, he's got great clarity to his writing. And he gets that down without like too much gaudiness. He's not a fluffy writer, if that makes sense. Makes sense. I will give a quote from early in the book just to give you a sense of sort of what you might be dealing with if you pick this up and see if you like it. So this is on page seven of my edition, which is the hardcover. Back then, years passed when you wouldn't pose for a picture. You wouldn't think to take a picture at all. Cameras felt intrusive to everyday life. It was weird to walk around with one unless you worked for the school paper, which made picture taking seem a little less creepy. Maybe if you had a camera, you used it during those last few days of schools, at parties, or as people were packing up, the logic of last minute cramming applied to the documentation of memories. If someone tried to take your picture, even if it was meant to be silly or spontaneous, you still fussed and awkwardly posed because there was a finality to it. One or two snaps at most, any more would seem obsessive. A moment would pass unremarked upon until months later when you developed photos you'd taken at a concert or birthday party, a proper event worth chronicling and you discovered some images of friends getting ready to go out or else a slice of life candid intended to burn through the end of the role. You'd forgotten about this. Later, when photography became ubiquitous, pictures were evidence that you existed at all, day in and day out. They registered a pattern. Looking back, you began to doubt the sequence of events if, in the absence of proof, anything had happened at all. Wow. I, uh, I really like that. <laughs> that was amazing. Well, so if you like that, you'll probably like this book because that is sort of a pretty representative of how he writes throughout. Okay. And another elf here, um, which you didn't really get in that, but you never really get the feeling that he's holding anything back. He's very <laughs> open and generous, including dunking on himself quite a bit because <laughs> he's talking about himself in like the most awkward years of his life. And he's like, he dunked on himself for like what he wore, what he thought, what he didn't listen to just on principle, all that stuff. What didn't he listen to on principle? Pearl Jam was something that came up a lot. Oh, well, that's fair because anyway, <laughs> continue. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and like he talked about like discovering Nirvana and really liking it and then everybody discovered Nirvana. So he stopped liking them. <laughs> things like that. Uh, um, and he even included quotes from his own journals at the time, which was like, he's not trying to like mm -hmm. keep any artifice of being cool. And then a sort of final elf is it made me want to listen to Pavement, which I guess is a pro. Mm. 
because I like what I've listened to so far, but it might also be an orc in that I could become one of those dudes who talks about pavement too much. And I don't want that. It's a real tightrope tight to walk. You're swimming in dangerous waters, my friend. But yeah, so he, he talks a lot about music. Music's very important to him and, and pavement is mentioned a fair amount. Mm. Um, You're already on a book review podcast. You can't also talk about pavement. <laughs> That's very true. And so yeah, those are my basic elves. Again, it's, it's a short book. It doesn't take that long to read. There's not much more in it than that. And if that sounds good to you, those are all good things about it. All right. I do have one orc that I want to throw in. Okay. Which is really more of a matter of preference, but he sometimes deviates more into sort of academic analysis, like often on sort of the topic of friendship, like he'll reference philosophers or quote their text and then sort of then apply it to his life. Mm. And I found those sections dragged just a little bit. And I looked more forward when he'd go back to more traditional memoir. I guess that's just a stylistic preference Mm. for me. I kind of felt like that was the one sort of distancing element he put in, which might have been just sort of a way of him taking a different angle of things. And they were less successful to me. But Mm. I mean, he knows his stuff and and that was compellingly written still. But like I... It was more activated by the um, the personal recollections for that. And and that's sort of my only real dissuasion. But it is such a short book and that comes up enough. It was enough to make me only rate it four stars instead of five. Mm. But it's a four star that comes with, a you know, an asterisk. So I do recommend that you read this book. I think it's a very, very strong piece of writing and very moving. And it's um, under 200 pages. So you can try it out. Just give, give it a try. Give it a taste. Why not? Get a moose-bouche. Um, so yeah, four stars. I'll, I'll definitely keep it on my shelf. I, I really did like it, and I, I do recommend it for others. Mm-hmm. And we will see how uh, pavement infects you in the months and years to come. Yeah, I'm going to start being insufferable. But do you have any facts on Huasu? Yes, I do. Once a Vassar now betraying us and going to Bard. All right, Huasu. He was born in 1977. He's an American writer and academic, now based in New York City. Heard of it? Yes. That's right. He's a professor of English at Bard College and a staff Boo. writer. <laughs> and a staff writer. Wow, strong reaction to Bard. Uh, and a staff writer at The New Yorker. In Yay! This... <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Uh, each sentence I'd like a reaction to. Uh, his... I don't want to do that. <laughs> his work includes investigations of immigrant culture in the United States, as well as public perceptions of diversity and multiculturalism. He is the author of two books, not just one. The first one is called A Floating Chinaman. Fantasy and Failure Across the Pacific. And his second book is Stay True, a memoir. Ooh, I've heard of that one. He is a second-generation Taiwanese-American. He was born in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, before moving to Plano and then Richardson, Texas. So, bouncing around there for a while. His family moved to Southern California, then ultimately good old Cupertino, California. The home of the fighting Tinos. (laughs) Uh uh He eventually attended college at the University of California, Berkeley, where he studied political science, graduating in 1999. Then he went to Harvard University to study Asian American literature, earning a PhD in the history of American civilization in 2008. Wow. PhD in the history of American civilization. Little little snippet. He wanted to go to NYU, but had to settle for Harvard. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he was a tenured associate professor of English and director of American studies at Vassar College. He was. Until 2022 and became professor of English at Bard. So those are like the the bare necessities about his life. And I'm now going to jump to an interview that he gave with LitHub.com. The interviewer here is Sam Fricoso. Sam asks, when you won the Pulitzer Prize, you said, stay true is not about the past. It's about memory. 
For a long while, I only remember the terrible things, or maybe I chose to. When it comes to the night of July 18th, 1998, the night of the murder, what are those memories that play in your head? And Sue answers, that was the night Ken threw a housewarming party. It's the last time any of us saw him alive. I played that night out in my memory so much in the days following, in the years since, that it now does feel like I'm watching a movie. I thought about what it was like to be on the balcony talking to him, what it would have looked like from across the street to see us talking. His death was a senseless freak thing. There is no way to return to the past. I ended up realizing the reason I was writing this book wasn't to make sense of the past, but it was to understand the future. Sam asks, it's it's my understanding that you didn't ask friends for their version of events. It almost seems like you were more interested in interrogating the objects from the past rather than the people in it. And Sue answers, yes, it wasn't a group biography. It wasn't a history of the late 1990s. It was more a book about my own relationship to my own memories. As far as its reverberations through my life, I've never left campus. I still teach college students. I never really processed why I'm so drawn to campuses, to mentoring college students. The fascination with writing, the fascination with the past, the fascination with the impossibility of ever conjuring the past, I realized a lot of these things are due to this absence. And you know, that reminds me of our good friend Rebecca Mackay. Do you remember her? That's true. Yes. She grew up on like a a private school campus in Chicago, I want to say. And And now her husband works at the same school, right? Something like that or a very similar thing. And then she wrote, I have some questions for you. I mean, it's a very seductive place, isn't it? School. Mm. School is seductive. (laughs) Oh, I don't wish. No, you said it. (laughs) No. Sam asks, in the years that followed your friend's passing, most of your work was about the future. You said, quote, all of my work is about the future and about how artists who don't have encumbrances like the rest of us imagine the future. Do you think you gravitated toward those stories and those artists because their ability to imagine the future was something you yourself wanted? And Sue answers... I do. I think one of the reasons I've been drawn to records and movies and things that I'm interested in is because it's people drawing on things they've learned, their own things they've loved. They're turning it into something else. There's a forward propulsion to culture that stays rooted in the past, that stays rooted in these traditions and legacies, but it allows us to turn the past into something else. There you go. There indeed you go. And that is a bite-sized morsel of Wasu. Hopefully he'll write another book and we'll read it again on the podcast because it sounds like a great writer. Yeah, sounds good to me. But you know what also sounds good to me at this point? Mm. A nice bowl of soup. It's cold in upstate New York. Toby, did you read anything that has at least (laughs) that in the title? Wow. By an enormous coincidence, yes, I did. (laughs) Um, I read In the Miso Soup by Ria Murakami. Uh, Soup, soup, soup. Here is your not log line, according to Dylan. In the miso soup, Ryo Murakami's viscerally effective psycho thriller follows 20-year-old Kenji, a Japanese man who works as a guide for foreign tourists who want to explore Tokyo's sex club scene during his increasingly unsettling experiences with his American client Frank, a man Kenji comes to suspect may be the person responsible for several brutal serial murders in the area. Oh, that's a great setup. Yeah, (laughs) it is. (laughs) Um, And really... That's all you need to know. This book is also very short, 200 pages in a small paperback format. It reads very quickly. And to get into any really further plot details would be to ruin things. Um, It's not really ruining things to say that he suspects Frank because Frank is absolutely terrifying from page one. But I'll get into that. (laughs) 
And Frank, a big old creep, enters the room. <laughs> Is yes. that what it said? Mm-hmm. So, jump into my elves. Big elf, giant elf, the characters. From the very first pages, Kenji, our main character, comes off as likable. He comes off as intelligent. You can trust him and root for him. He's an excellent person to live inside the head of. And he is just a, a really pleasurable narrator. Really wish I hadn't said pleasurable, but... I've said it. You did, though, and it goes out to the world. <laughs> <laughs> I really hate that we decided to live stream this one. Um, <laughs> again, it's not a spoiler to say, uh, as far as other characters, that from like page two, Frank is absolutely horrifying. He is introduced uh, as having a plastic face. It looks fake, and there's many paragraphs of describing his unsettling behavior, the way that he interacts with people, and his dialogue is just that kind of like grating, off-putting, like run fingernails on a chalkboard style behavior that when it's well done in books and films always really gets me when you see people breaking social conventions in like this aggressive terrible way it's like oh it's satisfying and horrifying at the same time you know what i'm talking about yeah I know what you're talking about, and that sounds really powerful, though I will say, because you said plastic face, I'm imagining he has, like, a baby doll's mask over his face. But basically, <laughs> that's a shorthand for how upsetting he is. Not just Kenji's treatment of the sex club scene, but Murakami's treatment is perfectly balanced throughout the book. Murakami is aware that we, the audience, are kind of like Frank. We're curious and kind of voyeuristic about this industry. We picked the book up and we're reading it. Obviously, there's something titillating about this scene. And so he kind of shows you it and acknowledges that it's an interesting thing. And he doesn't shame you for your interest in it, but he does kind of wonder aloud, like, oh, why do we all have this attraction to something that is that can be like very dark and very dangerous? and very bleak, but again, without ever condemning it, which I think is a a very, very fine line to walk. And I think it's really admirably done. Nice. The style of the book, Murakami's prose, is straightforward, elegant, and when the time comes, brutally vivid to the point of being stomach-turning. It reminds me a lot of watching a David Fincher movie, that kind of like cold eye of the camera where it just doesn't turn away no matter what's happening and things can get really, really grim and intense and you're just kind of trapped in your seat watching. That sounds great. (laughs) Honestly, I want to try to pick this one up. Yeah. I also love the setting and the themes. In the Miso Soup has a lot to say about the isolation and cultural amnesia of of modern Japan. This is according to Ria. And the neon lit streets of Tokyo's uh, Kabukicho, which is the red light district, is the perfect place for him to kind of comment on um, a lot of what he says is the loneliness of this culture. And it's 20 years ago, but it does feel at least accurate to what was happening then. Just as this world that you feel like you're absolutely living in to the point of feeling almost like imprisoned within it. And my final big elf is the plot for the entire book. I'm hooked. You're you're racing through it. It is a page turner. It never lets up. It's very short. It's just kind of like flying through the plot without ever feeling like cheap or pulpy to me. There are maybe some elements that feel a little pulpy, but they feel pulpy in like a fun way. Fun pulp, like orange juice. No, no. Or, orange juice pulp is disgusting. Uh, I, I should have okay, known. Well, we, we, I agree to disagree. Yeah, I, I, I would have tagged you as a pulp guy. I knew it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I look like a disgusting human, so uh-huh. I must be a pulp man. <laughs> 
pavement and pulp. That's what's, that's who you are now. <laughs> so I do have a small orc. There's a section at the very end of the book where Frank does a bit of uh, on-the-nose philosophizing that, in my opinion, goes on for a bit too long. It's a bit too direct where the rest of the book can be a little bit more subtle. But it's a very minor bit right at the end. It stands out only because the rest of the book is so great. And that orc is not enough to detract from the overall work. And I'm going to give it five friggin' stars. A boom, a boom, boom, boom. A there boom, you boom. Go. First five star of 2024. I will give a slight warning in case you hadn't already like listened to the log line and maybe had a hint of an idea. This book is, is not for the squeamish. I would maybe look up some trigger warning if you feel nervous about the content of this book because it gets very extreme. So there's your warning. But yeah, I if you feel like you can stomach it, I wholeheartedly recommend it. Five stars. Wow. Mm-hmm. Big swing out of the gate. Whatever gets chosen for you this week has a lot to live up to, huh? That's true. So, Andrew, tell me, tell me more about Ryo Murakami, please. Well, I will. Once my phone unlocks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, Ria Murakami was born on February 19th, 1952 in Sasebo, Nagasaki Prefecture, Japan. My author is older than your author. There we go. It's very true. You are the old head of the group. <laughs> yes. Um, but both still alive. Um, <laughs> Um, <laughs> you really just just the joy <laughs> both survive yeah well we, sometimes it's a real bummer to say yeah. how your author died when yeah. doing research <laughs> it's a true. struggle that a lot of pages won't know but yeah. still well it's also it's like do i leave it out do i put it in and then yeah it's, anyway yeah especially when it's a real rough one it's like yeah that's mm. what happened and that's then, and those are my facts yep <laughs> But not Ria Murakami. So he stayed uh, in Sasebo for most of his childhood and developed creative passions early. In high school, he was the drummer in a band called Kolokanth. Cool name. And he was also a bit of a rebel. Whoa. <laughs> Inspired by the counterculture movements. Uh, and he was even uh, placed under house arrest for three months. Whoa. Uh, for barricading the roof of his school. The roof must have been somehow used at that school. I'm not sure why. Mm -hmm. Skate park. Exactly. <laughs> After graduating from that school, he started another band and pursued music and visual art. He briefly attended a school for silk screening, but dropped out only oh. to relocate to Tokyo and enroll in a sculpture program at a different art school, which I believe he completed his studies with the sculpture program. Mm. Around this time, he met and married his wife, Tezuko Takahashi, who is a keyboardist, and they uh, have a son together. However, Murakami wasn't only rocking out, he was writing out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, because <laughs> his uh, first novel, Almost Transparent Blue, was written while he was still a student and was a bestseller and critically acclaimed slash received awards. So he's one of those folks on our podcast who got real successful real early. Oh, like Jonathan Safran Foer, if you will. Oh, yes. So yeah, he like quickly gained a reputation as I, I saw the phrase enfant terrible. I really wish Bailey was on the podcast to translate that phrase for me, but I, you know, I'll never know. It basically means bad boy. Oh, okay. Thank you. And he quickly gained a reputation as like this new fresh voice of sort of disaffected youth. Mm -hmm. 
his follow-up, Coin Locker Babies, was also uh, well-received and uh, awarded. So it set a pattern. Like his first two were hits and he like regularly published a lot of new work after that. And he was pretty prolific for a long time and sometimes publishing up to three novels in a year. Whoa. And some, some of the notable ones include 1994's The World in Five Minutes from Now, 1997's In the Miso Soup, and hey. also in 1997, Audition, which was adapted into a film which some of you might have seen. At the time of recording, he actually hasn't published a novel since 2015 or any new work at all since 2016. But there's quite a backlog if you enjoyed In the Miso Soup, if you want to check out some more of his work. I did. Yes. You know that, Andrew. I know that. I listened to your review, Toby. You were asleep, um, weren't you? I knew it. Yeah. No, I just I timed my reactions really well when I was asleep. <laughs> He's got like the, the Home Alone Walkman and he just says, mmm, wow. Mmm, joke about soup. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Outside of writing, he has done a fair number of, of interesting things, including starting a record label called Murakami's that was specifically mm. dedicated to exposing Cuban music to Japanese audience. It was an imprint of Sony. He also ran an e-magazine, hosted a TV show about sort of finance and business, <laughs> and started a video streaming company as well as an ebook producing wow. company. So he's got his fingers in a lot of pies. And that is what I could find on Ria Murakami, author of In the Miso Soup. Wow. I mean... He actually was hard to find information on because I think most sources were just in Japanese. That reminds me, I actually, I kind of slept on starting this book because I had it assigned over the winter break. And I was like, oh, I'll just grab it from the library. Not available on the library. Okay, I'll see if I can read it on Audible. Not available on Audible. I actually had to go online and order a secondhand physical copy. Can you believe that? That's dedication right there, Pejos. That's dedication. But I'm so happy because it's like, I think we've all mentioned how we've read books for the podcast that wouldn't normally have read. And this is like, for sure, if I had tried to get it on those things and I hadn't had to read it for the podcast, I'd be like, eh, forget it. I ain't reading yeah, this book. Yeah, you would have given up real quick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, excellent research, Andrew. I do have one more question for you, which is, have you prepared a one-on-one -on -one game to recite to me for this episode? <laughs> I have, and I've added a little bit of danger to it. Oh, I love it. Uh, for me, not for you. Oh, okay. The name of this game is In the Recipe Box. Oh, okay. What makes this game special is there are real stakes to this game. Real financial stakes to this game. Andrew is about to read his social security number out right now. No, I have found three recipes that pertain to our books. Okay. And I'm going to have you guess the ingredients that are used in those recipes. For every ingredient you get correct, I will Venmo you 25 cents. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> if you get it, all the ingredients for one of them, I will add a dollar wow. to the total. Man. So I've done the math. I think you can get a maximum of $8 from this uh, if you got every single ingredient correct, which I don't think is going to happen. So it's not a huge financial stake, but I figured since it's a one-on-one -on -one game, let's add something a little funky to it. I am so excited to eventually spend $1.25 of your money. <laughs> there you go. Let's see. We'll start with the obvious choice here. Miso soup. Okay. So the recipe I found the miso soup from is from a website called Love and Lemons. Oh, um, and I've, it's titled I've been on that website. Yeah. So what do you think is in their miso soup recipe? There are, I will tell you, seven ingredients. Okay. Miso paste. Correct. Hot water. Well, water, but I'll take it. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, okay. you, you um, would make it hot eventually. So uh, yes. Uh, green onions. That's correct. Three. Tofu. Yes. 
Any guess on the specific kind of tofu? Silken. That's correct. Exactly. Uh, so that's four. What else is in miso soup? Okay, I'm stumped. I've okay, arrived. you I've still taken got a, a dollar, dollar out of yes. this. Yeah. I was flying there. It helps that yeah, we made uh, Louise and I made miso soup last week. So, oh, there you go. Uh, so, in this specific recipe, I should say I don't know what every miso soup has, but they also included kombu, mm. dried seaweed, and tamari. Oh, I could have gotten everything but tamari. I wouldn't have guessed tamari. Oh. Tamari was listed as two tastes, so I think that one is maybe less commonly used. So it's still a dollar, though. <laughs> um, <laughs> next. This comes up a fair amount and stay true, but pancakes, this is New York Times uh, cooking's everyday pancake recipe. Okay. I'm going to say- Which means you have to have pancakes every day. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say eggs. Yep. Flour. Yes. And I should say there are seven ingredients to this one as well. (laughs) Eggs, flour, baking powder- to rise. That's right. You got the right one. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> aren't you? Are you regretting that you didn't ask Dylan and Bailey these questions? Who <laughs> they would have no idea. Um, <laughs> Pedro's Bailey and Dylan don't cook very much. Let's Dylan, just say Dylan does cook. I will say he's a he can he can rustle up <laughs> he some cooks crab. less than than either one of us. That's true. <laughs> um, sugar. Yep. Already at two dollars here now. I know. I'm cruising. Um, <laughs> depending on what pancakes we're making, maybe a little bit of cinnamon. Not in the everyday pancakes. A little bit of oil. Uh, not in these ones. Butter. That's good. Five. Yeah. Okay. So there's two more. That's it. That's all I've got. All right. Uh, milk and salt. Were oh, you left out. milk and salt. <laughs> but that's okay. That's still another. You're at two dollars and twenty five cents. Um, I do plan on making, you know, if you guys go on Goodreads, we do pull quotes from each episode to kind of like as our review. And I think I'm going to make the pull quote for this episode. Oh, milk and salt. (laughs) There you go. Mm -hmm. People know exactly what it means. Mm -hmm. Now, the last one, this one's a little I don't know if you're going to know about this one. This is what I am cooking for dinner tonight, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is pasta amatriciana. Which is oh. a Roman pasta dish, and I will give you the hint that it is a red pasta. Well, and there are eight ingredients in this one. You need some sort of pasta. I think you would choose a weird one. You know what? You said pasta. I will give you. It's bucatini, is what I'm using. Oh, I would okay. have accepted spaghetti as well. But you said pasta. That's an ingredient. That's one. Okay. Tomatoes, obviously. Yep. Uh, olive oil. That's yep. Onions. No. Okay. Garlic. No. Also. Oh, what? Uh, basil. No. What, what is this? Uh, salt. Yes. Uh, I'm really, really scraping the bottom of the pan here. Tomatoes, oil, and salt. And pasta. Pepper. Yep. That's five. So you're at, you're at 350 now. I want to say Brussels sprouts. <laughs> Why do you want to say that? <laughs> I don't know. It's a compulsion. No. You know what? I'm stumped yet again. I've taken enough of your money. Fill me in. Uh, 350. That's really good. So the additional, it's a, what is was throwing you off is it is not a pasta based in your aromatics of garlic and onion, but pasta based on the power of guanciale or pancetta, depending on what you have available. Uh, um, so you're missing guanciale, which is pork cheek. Um, oh, or pancetta. I always <laughs> forget the guanciale. Yeah. Uh, red pepper flakes and pecorino romano. Tell me the truth, Andrew. Were you concerned that you were going to have to pay me $8 and you suddenly switched to a much more difficult recipe than daily pancakes? 
<laughs> no, you didn't get all the answers in Daily Pancakes. Come on. That's true. That's true. Well, I did a lot better on that than I thought I thought I would. 350 that's going to come into your bank account. That is enough for, you know, a coffee without tip. I don't know what the prices are like where you live. Yeah, I'll, I'll go uh, upset a barista after this. <laughs> well, congratulations on your $3.50. And I think an overall, you got more than half, half of the available points. So uh, I call that a win. Thank congratulations, you. Toby, on winning in the recipe box. Uh, thank you very much. So where's Dylan to haunt us? <laughs> Yeah, he's going to bust through the front door of my apartment. No, he's not, because I think that you have... What, what does Bailey say? It's your time to shine on the podcast, Andrew. It's time for the choosing. The choosing. Yeah, no, it is my time to shine. I have not had any, <laughs> anything to say this entire episode. Uh, no. So, first of all, Pejos, this is the time when we choose books randomly from our shelves using a random number generator, which was fun to have the keys to instead of being at the mercy <laughs> of for the first time in quite a while. First of all, I didn't get to choose a book for myself because in exciting developments, what? we are going to have a guest next episode what? who you know and love jillian beth durkee aka the composers of our music aka my wife whoa she's gonna join us and she has selected a book from one of our lists okay and she has selected from my list number eight burnham wood by eleanor catton oh well i'm excited for this one i i read that recently Oh, so you've read it. So you mm -hmm. can you can discuss. Awesome. That's perfect. So Jillian and I will read for next episode. And mm -hmm. Toby, you'll have read it. So we'll be able to have a good, solid convo about that. That's great. Sounds um, like a great episode. It sounds like we hardly need Dylan and Bailey. And we're not flailing without them. No, certainly not. Um, but I will say that just so I could see what an alternate version of me would be doing, I did <laughs> auto number generate on myself for mm -hmm. this. <laughs> and I'm really glad Jillian's joining because what was chosen was number 28, which was the entire His Dark Materials cycle. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have on my list number 28 is a box set of, of the first three books. Wow. In that cycle. So I am pretty happy that I don't have to try to get through those in, you know, two weeks, two weeks where I'm all also working. I have two work trips in those two weeks. That would have been hard. But no such luck for you, Toby. Oh, uh oh, did I get a trilogy chosen for myself? I don't think I have any trilogies, I do I? I? There's all these, I, I don't know. I, there's all this, my heads are being filled with languages from across the world because they're telling me from what I can understand, that you have had number one, Babel by R.F. Kuang selected. Ooh, heck yeah. Ooh, I'm very excited. I've been I've been telling the random number generator, aka Dylan, to fudge the numbers and pick this for me for a long time. But it was a it. little disconcerting when one showed up when I was running the number <laughs> generator for the first time and I was like, that seems broken. But nope, it was. But yeah, so that's that's your that's your selection. Babel. Um have yeah. you read any other R.F. Kuang? Yes, I, I read Yellowface recently, and I really enjoyed that. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. This seems like a strong... And this is actually like a fantasy novel, yeah. writer, right? Yeah, seems quite different. It's one of the big books of the year last year, so I'm very, very hyped to read it. That sounds like a good episode to me. Yeah, I would tune in, but I'm also recording it, so I have to. <laughs> I can't not tune in. Well, great. Thank you, the spirit of Dylan for imbibing me <laughs> with the power to choose him. <laughs> and in two weeks, we'll be back with an episode with guest Jillian Beth Durkee, where we will cover Burnham Wood by Eleanor Catton and Babel by R.F. Kuang. Nice. 
Thank you for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get into contact with us, you can email the To Read List podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads at goodreads.com slash the To Read podcast. And we're on Instagram at the To Read List podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, you know what to do. Get your fingers down. <laughs> get your fingers down to your phone and rate us five stars on your podcatcher of choice. And even after that, even more than that, go out and tell a friend. Tell somebody, hey, there's two guys guys who are doing a great job, even though their friends aren't there with them on the podcast. They're doing so good, and I believe in them and care for them. You could tell them that, and then also say it's the To Read List podcast, and it's about books. Yeah. Thanks. Never have we ever had a podcast with two men just struggling <laughs> through. Hey, you won't the- believe it. <laughs> but yes, thank you to Toby and Toby alone for co-hosting this podcast <laughs> with me. To Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books. books. books.